Hey everyone, welcome to the inaugural episode of Unpacked Podcast. Thank you so much for joining and listening in. I know it has been a long time coming for me and I'm so excited to share this with you. Today's topic is something that I know we all have thought about at multiple points in our life and something that really resonates, especially given the past month. I know this is coming Uh, I believe in March. However, this was recorded in February and so still very relevant topic. Today we get to talk about love and not the surface level idea of how do we find partners or how do we make sure that our relationships are successful. It's more so speaking on what actually happens to our brain when we fall in love. How do we identify those love feelings and how do we identify if those feelings are being misinterpreted. There is something called the two-factor theory that really discusses how we become aroused, how our brain and emotions are connected, and how we can kind of connect those initial ideas of what love is from our childhood to our partners in adulthood. And our guest today is an amazing psychologist And I will put a disclaimer out there, family friend, who really took some time to talk with me about those core innate emotions, how our brain processes them, and talks a little bit further about how we can try to recognize those key concepts to be able to apply them when we do think that we're falling in love or when we do find a partner to make sure that those key elements that we learned as childhood or in childhood are not affecting us in adulthood. So I really hope you all enjoyed this discussion. Thank you all for joining me on this ride. I'm so excited for you to hear this episode. Enjoy. Dr. McCall Robinson, thank you so much for joining me. Dr. McCall is a clinical psychologist and an instructor at the Chicago School of Professional Psychology, an adjunct professor at Los Angeles Community College, director of clinical services at PACC or PAC, as well as the founder and CEO of Insight.me, a service that provides mental health coaching and educational webinars. Thank you so much for joining me, Dr. McCall. Oh, sure. Thank you. Thank you for having me. So what I really wanted to to talk to you about was the theory of emotion and how our brains process feelings, specifically feelings about love. You know, I thought about this topic while reading the book called All About Love and uh, was really struck by the thought that a lot of our feelings and how we process feelings of love come from childhood. And then I thought a little bit deeper into that and considered how are our brains even processing the emotion of love? Because oftentimes it's very different from person to person, but also brains don't really know what those emotions are. Um, From previous research, it really talks about how our brains only understand certain physical reactions and uh, guesses what our emotion is based on common trends. And so as I'm thinking about that, I'm relating it to my personal experience, you know, how I've been taught love is supposed to be from a child and how I've been you know, conducting myself in interacting with people 
to perceive love, to give love as an adult, thinking about maybe other people coming into this and considering, wow, some of these issues that I've had, uh, problems that I have with love or with identifying those feelings of love are directly related to uh, my past, my childhood, and more so the confusion that I have with actually identifying what the feelings of love are for me. So with that being said, I wanted to kind of pose that question with you and first ask, how do we know when we're feeling love or what feeling is love? And I don't mean, you know, who's the right one or who's the right person, but more so how does our brain actually determine that we're feeling intrigued by somebody? All right. Well, you've said a lot and you cover a lot of different points of regarding how we one process emotion, how the brain process emotion, as well as the physical responses and how our brain does not really know what is what. And it's actually responding to the physical. So in your reading and your reflection, you sound about right, like you're on point there. So whatever you're reading, keep doing it. Um, I'm gonna try to fill in the gaps here um, and just explain in theory more about emotions. And the first place I think is most important to start off with clarifying emotions and what I do with clients is really identifying how we have primary and secondary emotions. So we understand these basic emotions and you've seen the movie Inside Out or the cartoon or whatever. Right. Primary okay. emotions are anger, fear, sadness, disgust, happiness, surprise, and contempt. So if we're able to understand that first concept, you see love is not in there. Right. Those few are just our base, basic emotions that our body innately can process. That's correct. So it's broken up into like, if you make a grid, we have aroused, we have at the top, not aroused at the bottom, we say negative on the left and positive on the right. So these are positive versus negative emotions and emotions that produce arousal and emotions that do not produce arousal. And if we had a wheel, our primary emotions fall somewhere in aroused or not aroused, positive and negative. And then these secondary emotions are blends of the primary emotions. So these are ways where we start seeing remorse. We see guilt, shame, love, bitterness, jealousy. Those are all secondary emotions. Right. But they drive us like we think it's a primary emotion. It's actually a blend of the primary ones. Right. So okay. where would love kind of fall into that spectrum? So love, because it's a secondary emotion, I would have to ask the person, one, when you feel love, do you become aroused or not aroused? Because it depends. Does the person like the idea of love? Does love turn them off? So that's how this is. It's subjective. It's a subjective experience. Right. One thing that kind of comes to mind is this relation that we have to how we were taught to love as children. That's correct. Right. So again, with this blend, for instance, let's say you have healthy and loving attachments, right? Love will give you an, a positive and you'd feel aroused. 
So maybe you get excited, you get elated, you have butterflies in your stomach, your body feels warm, and it's positive. That's love. Now, you can also experience toxic and negative love, where it's tense, you feel nervous, you feel stressed out, which is negative. But then somewhere in there, that toxic person, parent, you know, whatever it was, early experience comes and brings you comfort and teaches you this is love through trauma, tragedy, physical abuse, things like that. And you've associated love with a negative emotion. So, so what I was originally uh, referencing when I said I've kind of read a little bit about this and, you know, we've talked in the past and you brought it to my attention as well is this two factor theory about that physical uh, stimulus that causes some type of arousal, whether that be positive or negative in our determination. Um, And then we cognitively label that physical response and associate it with some sort of emotion. And then our brain says, okay, now we're feeling the emotion once we've registered that. So here, that's kind of taking this uh, two-factor theory to the next step and saying, not only do we need some sort of physical um, stimuli, whether that be positive or negative to kind of determine what that emotion is going to be, but our childhood experiences also influence what that emotion is going to be. That's correct. So we'll go back a little bit. So I'm going to use you as the example because this is where it's you who's here with me. So when I say the word love, I tell me physically, when you feel in love, when you encounter someone, you've been in love in the past, where do you feel it in your body? Right. So that's such a strange question because it's not one that I've really taken a lot of time to really think about. But at the same time, um, if I feel in love or I have these emotions of care, I think that's what I related to. It's an emotion of care. I feel um, drawn to them. I feel... No, see, that's where the thing is missing. You're articulating it. Yeah. Where in your body? Is it in your stomach? Right. Is it in your head? Do you get butterflies? Does your heart flutter? What is the physical, I am in love? Do you get the chills? Do you get goosebumps? Where is this happening in your body? And why this is important to know is where I'm going to explain to you about these theories about how we experience emotions and why they get confused and what happens in our brain. So I want to be able to use you as this example. (laughs) Telling me, so for instance, let's just say most people, when they say they feel love, they feel it in their abdomen, they feel it in their chest. Right. I I would say just to give you some some sort of uh, ammunition here to use, um, I would say that I feel it uh, with chills, uh, I definitely feel it in my stomach, as you just said, is pretty common. Um, and then I feel it as kind of like a, a relaxing or just like a, a loose state, kind of a, a calm. But again, that's getting into that articulation. Right. So this helps. But see how far removed we are from emotions in our mind-body connection? So why you can confuse emotions is right. not tapped into where they are. And they also feel like other things like in your stomach could be anxiety. It could be happiness. It could be pride. It could be shame. So what happens is in our, we have to understand the brain, the limbic system, which is responsible um, for describing kind of the ways we, um, we experience emotion. It is, 
it's the area of the brain that links specific emotional functionings. So within the limbic system, the two main parts is the insula and the amygdala. This is what gives emotions like detail. This right. receives the messages and then it integrates these somatic symptoms. This is why I'm saying, where do you feel it in your body, Troy? Right. Where is this happening? It integrates that signal from the entire body. And then it becomes this subjective awareness. Again, you start to tell yourself, ooh, this isn't shame. This is love I'm feeling. These goosebumps are not fear goosebumps. These are love goosebumps. So, so that's a subjective awareness. And that's because of the, the insula. Right. So how do we become aware of that? Because as we just heard, you know, I'm having difficulty pinpointing exactly what that physical response is to it. It's not something that I've taken a lot of time to consider because it happens just automatically, right? We just um, innately have these reactions to things and we don't really take the time to think about it. So for people out there that are listening to this, um, how do we become you know, cognizant of that type of physical reaction or is there a way? Well, see, that's training, that's practice, that's listening to podcasts such as this to even know it exists. <laughs> right. Five minutes ago, you were like, I have this, I've read about this and this and this and this. And then I come and tell you and, I'm, and you're like, oh my God, I never thought about that. It's exposure. It, no one's in anatomy class. No one's you know, learning about biology and really how these parts of our body and our mind works. Nobody can even tell you what the amygdala does. And it's so important to processing emotions. Again, your amygdala and your insula give fruit and depth and description to what you're experiencing. So right. I was going to say, and I think you're going there, you know, so we talked about the insula, but what about the amygdala? What is that really uh, contributing to this process? Right. So this generates an immediate emotional and behavior reaction. So your insula says, Ooh, the body's experiencing something. And then it hits the amygdala and the amygdala goes, Oh, this is that emotion. And this is how I'm going to react to it. And the amygdala is tied to memory. So for instance, if I give you a smell of something and it reminds you of your grandmother's freaking fresh baked cookies, I can put that can put you in a daydream, in a state of taking you back. Like you're sitting at that table, having that meal, and you will be in a whole nother place. That's right. what I mean. And you'll say, oh my gosh, that makes me feel so happy, sad, you know, depressed, whatever it is. And then behaviorally, you're going to respond in a way like you're in a, in a few, you're like in a daydream. You're in a different state than you were. And that's because of your insula and your amygdala working together to integrate a physical bodily response and tying it into experiences. And then you start thinking, oh, based on this situation and what I'm experiencing, this increased heart rate, this is a good memory or this is a bad memory. You start right. to use subjective. The second part comes in about these theories of emotion. So there's this James Lang theory where it says people perceive specific patterns of bodily responses. And as a result of the body response, that's how they feel an emotion. So if I get the chills or the shakes, I'm going to say, oh my gosh, that means I'm afraid. Or I say, oh my gosh, that means I'm excited. So the body does something and then I articulate what that means. There's right. a in Bard theory where it says the information about the emotional stimuli 
it goes into my brain and into my body. And as a result, again, there's an emotional experience and the body simultaneously. So I may feel something, those chills, and then my mind may start telling me something. And that's how I experience. I go, oh, these two are happening at the same time. So that means this. Right. Based on a memory. So this kind of leads into the next question, right? We're talking about how these experiences, these physical responses, and then thus uh, the recollection of what those experiences and physical responses has been in your past contribute to how we react and experience things in our future. Now, one thing that we deal with, especially within uh, the Black community, is trying to decipher how to love. And sometimes having that trauma that we've experienced in different parts of our life, trauma that our parents have experienced, kind of trickling down and creating this misconception of what love really should feel like. Um, and so now that we understand what's really happening in our brains and in our bodies to process those feelings and how those memories can contribute to how we see and feel love in the future, what steps can we take to try and you know, break that down? Well, it's, a, it's an intentional practice. One is being open to the fact of there are stereotypes about who can feel what types of emotions. And if you bring up a, a valid point about, you know, the black community and if these kind of things, is it okay for us to have emotions? Is it, is it okay for us to be afraid or sad? Do we grow up like that in our households? Um, are we male? Are we female? Can boys cry? Can boys be sad? Can they be emotional? So it is breaking through the barriers of, you know, generations of conditioning and training and things that are passed down from those before us. And these are our most, most trusted advisors. So it is being able to have the confidence to go against the norm and the stereotypes about, about emotions. Right. Those socially perpetuated um, ideas and prejudices that have been placed upon us, whether you know we're cis, queer, um, black, white, or young, old, etc. There's so much that is kind of influencing the way that we feel we need to act about love or act in love, That's receive correct. love. That's correct. So training, being in touch with it, breaking down your own barriers, sitting with it and asking your own yourself a question like that, or asking your friends, hey, well, when you experience you know, anxiety, where do you feel it at in your body? And how do you know it's not love? Well, when you experience fear, how do you know it's not this or this? Because our physical responses are very similar. And then it's a narrative we tell ourselves about what's happening in our body are that stimuli that's producing that physical response or that emotional response. It's a narrative we're telling ourselves about it. Right. You have to be open to challenging your narrative or being around people that can challenge your narrative. Right. For the better that you do trust. So this leads to another question, you know, considering that, let's give an example. Uh, we're in, you know, some sort of relationship and we recognize that uh, the same feeling that we had when we first saw them 
is a feeling that we get when we're arguing. Is that common? And if so, you know, how do we recognize that this arguing is not necessarily a good feeling and not something that is saying that we are in love, but rather possibly a negative and that feeling is not love, it's anxiousness or fear instead of love. That's one of those things where, again, conditioning, training, you learn to weed out a physical response because your heart racing and you and you have to look into your own history. If, you know, some people are conditioned to be like, oh, I'm not I don't feel safe in a relationship unless we're arguing. And it's like, well, how did you why did why does that happen? Where did you learn that from? Right. Um, that's a different type of trauma. It's a different type of understanding of relationship and how they interpret and receive and give love. So that's a, a, a practice that, that goes along with what you're saying. Um, but in the general sense where you're saying, okay, the feeling I had when I first saw this person were these goosebumps and all this stuff, but you have to ask yourself where else and what other emotions go along with those feelings and with love and when things are new, we want to see the best in a person. We want to be in love. We want to be correct. So we, our brains are that powerful. It'll set up blind spots for us. There's another thing called that misattribution of arousal. You're basically misconstruing emotions because you're in a state of arousal. So the, an experiment was done where they took um, heterosexual males. They asked them to walk across either these two different bridges. One bridge was extremely high. It was narrow. It was over shady rocks and, you know, a raging river. Whereas another bridge was lower. It was safer, less shaky. And they have them walk across the bridge. And at the middle of the bridge, they're going to have them speak to an attractive woman who's a research assistant that interviews them and gives them her phone number and says, hey, call me if you're more interested in telling you about this research, right? And the guys would, on the less stable bridge, were talking about how aroused they were because they were had sweaty palms, their heart rate was up. And this can be misconstrued as when they go to rate that woman that they met halfway through, as more attractive than what she is and more in love than what they actually were because they were in this heightened state of arousal. Now, was that panic? Was that anxiety? Was that fear or was that love? Because the what they were experiencing somatically are all the same type of emotions. They have those same physical responses. And that's why it's called this misattribution of arousal. They're confused about what is it that I'm experiencing? Am I fearing death? Or am I in love right now? Like, oh my gosh, the physical state is so powerful. It can completely sway our thought process and our ability to make really good decisions and judgment because we're so used to these other physical symptoms. Wow. That's, that's a really, really interesting point. And I think I have two questions um, about that study. So first, how did you or how did these uh, researchers rather determine a person's attractiveness to give this kind of rating 
and use this as a controlled factor for the men that are, you know, in this fear state uh, to rate their attractiveness or level of arousal for that person. And then two, um, does this study change if the woman is, you know, the investigated uh, person or studied person, or if, you know, this crosses genders rather, not just if it's a woman. So, and what you're speaking to is basically compounding factors of any type of research. With any type of research, we can always find these factors about why the research is not real or why it doesn't apply to everyone or why, you know, this wouldn't work with women or it wouldn't work with men. And how did you, who's to determine who's beautiful? There's a lot of those questions that can go into it, but based on what you're talking about or what you're asking about is understanding how the bottom line is, how can we possibly misunderstand our own emotions? That's your question. And that's why we can misunderstand our emotions because they match physical responses that go along with other types of emotions. And if when you've ever heard someone say, you need to be more in touch with yourself, get more in touch with your emotions. It's that piece. Like just because your heart is racing, it doesn't mean you're in love or just because your heart is racing doesn't mean you're afraid. What else could it mean? What else are you experiencing? That's what this study was bringing about. The, the foundation is we can misattribute our emotions if we are solely relying on physical responses and how physical of a response is love. Thank you so much, Dr. McCall Robinson. This conversation was incredible and I think really enlightening. Uh, key points that I really found helpful was just this last one that we're talking about, how we can misconstrue those physical reactions and taking a second to think about what our physical responses to certain stimulus actually mean, you know, besides just going with that initial response or that initial thought, take another moment and ask yourself, is this love or, you know, intrigue? Is this fear? Is this anxiety, confusion, et cetera, because a lot of times those physical reactions can be very similar. So thank you so much for your time. And uh, I hope we talk soon. Before we go, is there anything that you would like to promote or um, let the people listening in know that you have going on? Oh, definitely. So um, starting back in April, um, I'll be having more live webinars on various mental health topics. Um, this website you can go to is insightme.com. So that's in as in Nancy, S-I-G-H-T dot me. And there you can sign up for a newsletter so you can hear the monthly topics, things that are coming up. Also, you can request consultation if you have questions, if you have webinars or things you want to do, you companies you work for, I do different speeches and talks and educational for different groups of people, different things like that. So if you need any of those types of things, you can always just feel free to email and go onto the site and reach out there. Amazing. Thank you so much for joining me. You are very welcome. Thank you for having me. Bye.
Thank you so much for joining me for this inaugural episode. I really hope you enjoyed it and took a little something from it. Uh, we will be continuing to release episodes in the coming weeks. And um, before you go, please send me any feedback. I'd love to hear it. I always encourage it. Uh, subscribe. And we hope to see you on the next episode as well. Goodbye, everyone.